Beloved, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16. And uh, we're going to look today, we, it's amazing to think about it, we've got two sermons left in Romans. We've got this morning in which we're going to look at a warning and a promise uh, that Paul is, is going to give to um, the brothers and the sisters in, in Rome. And then next week we're going to look at the doxology in verses 25 through 27, but we're about ready to close the book on Romans. Not that we won't revisit our good friend, but uh, two weeks until this sermon series is complete. I want you to stand with me as we read this text this morning. And as we read it, I want us to read this with ears that hear Paul speaking from a heart of love and deep concern for his brothers and sisters in Christ. That this is, this warning that he gives here, we would take seriously. And that we wouldn't treat it as inconsequential for our day. And applying only to the days of the early church. This warning here that we're going to read this morning is, I think, more applicable in the days in which we live. Paul writes, and this is the word of God, starting in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Father, whenever we approach your word, Father, we ought to do so in reverence and humility with the realization that what we are reading is more than just ink on a page, but that it is the eternal and unchanging and authoritative word of the living God. That these are words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of light and of life. And so we need you to instruct us and to teach us as we engage these words together this morning. My only value... Lord, here is that you would make me nothing and make yourself everything, that I would decrease and you would increase. So I pray, Lord God, that you would empty me of myself and of my reliance upon any, any of my faculties. And Lord God, that you would make me entirely dependent upon your spirit, that you would give me the unction of the Holy Spirit and that you would speak through me. 
for the praise of your glory. I pray, Father, that you would prepare and that you would hold in your hands the hearts of every single person in this room. And Lord, that you would apply specifically to each heart exactly what we need to hear. Exactly what we need to know. Exactly, Lord God, how we need to perhaps be corrected or encouraged or exhorted. I pray, Lord God, that you would apply your word to our souls in the exact manner in which we need it to be applied to us. I pray that our hearts, Lord God, would be attentive and focused. Lord, we wouldn't, our minds wouldn't run all over the place. But that, Lord, we'd be focused upon you and upon what you have to say to us. God, I pray that I would not speak of myself. I won't speak anything of my own wisdom, but only, Lord God, that which comes from you. This is a sacred time. And it won't be repeated. This is a sacred time, Lord, when we gather together as your people with upturned faces to hear you speak to us. So please speak to us. Please speak to us from your holy word. And let us have hearts and ears to receive it. Lord, move in our midst for the praise of your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, this text that we're looking at this morning, these final instructions of Paul to the church in Rome, these instructions are so seemingly abrupt, right? They just seem to come out of nowhere that it's caused some scholars to say that it's misplaced. In other words, as the story goes, you know, Tertius was kind of sitting down and he was doing some proofreading over the letter to the Romans and he got to the end and he realized, oh man, I forgot that whole warning section that Paul wanted me to put in there. And so he just kind of chucked it in there at the end, didn't really care about where it fit, just threw it in there so, you know, he could get it in. To be completely frank, I think that theory is complete hogwash. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think that. This admonition and this promise are perfectly placed. They're exactly where Paul, really, more importantly, where the Holy Spirit wanted them to be at the end of these greetings and and these commendations of these faithful brothers and sisters in Rome because it fits there. And let me explain why. Think about this with me, okay? When we were looking at the commendations, right, and the greetings last week, when we were looking at that, we saw that what they actually gave to us as, as Paul was going through this, this group of these list of people that were in his mind and, and, and greeting them, we saw that what it really gave to us was a snapshot of the church in Rome, didn't it? What, what they were, how they were made up, like who they were made up of. It gave us insight into the nature and the character of, of the true church. It wasn't just a list of names. What we saw was that, you know what? The real church, the true church, is composed of a diverse group of everyday kinds of people. But what separates them from everybody else, what separates us from everybody else in the the world is that we're in Christ and they're in Adam. Isn't that true? And we're in Christ, beloved, right, through faith and by the sovereign grace of God, not because we are somehow naturally more intelligent than anybody else, right? 
Not because we have evaluated all of the evidence and in our learned opinion, Christianity is the best option among the world religions. We're not in Christ because, you know, we've been more virtuous or more moral than other people. It's not because of our efforts. It's not because of our achievements. It's not because of that garbage thing that you hear preachers say all the time, the potential that God saw in you. We're in Christ. We're in Christ not because God owed it to us, but because in His great love and sovereign mercy, He determined to give eternal life to a people like us who are entirely undeserving. Isn't that true? that's it. We're in Christ by the sovereign grace of God to regenerate our heart and our deadened hearts, to give life to our once, you know, dead souls, to create in us, to even create in us the very faith by which we trust in the perfect life and the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope in life and in death. We're in Christ because of sovereign grace and nothing else. That's it. And moreover, we were, as we were going through all those greetings, we saw, and we, we, it's very clear, that the church is composed of a people that is consistently growing in Christ, right? That's growing in conformity to His perfect righteousness and His holiness, right? In other words, salvation results in sanctification, doesn't it? Justification leads to conformity to the image and the character of our Savior, does it not? We grow in wisdom and understanding. We grow in grace. And we don't do it on our own. We're not running this race by ourselves. God has put us in a family, praise God. He's put us in in a, in a, in a context of a family, the family of God, a people that are united not by human blood, right? But by the blood of, of, of Christ and by the bond of the Holy Spirit. And so together, right, what do we do? We spend our days on this earth you know, together working for the glory of Christ to bring the message of hope and salvation to bear in this darkened world that desperately needs the gospel of Christ, right? That's what our life is like. Together, we live to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1 verses 9 through 12, right? That's who we are. And so... The truth is, if there's anything that can derail... The peace and the unity of the church that can destroy who we are as the people of God, beloved, it is the influence of false teachers and false brethren among us. Those who would steer the church away from the truth. Those who would steer the church away from Christ. That would steer the church away from faithfulness to the Lord and bring doubt and division through false words and false deeds. It is an ever present danger to the church and that's why paul puts this admonition right here 
after he's talked about this great unity and the wonder of who we are as the people of God and offered all of these greetings and these commendations, he's telling us, man, look out. Be careful. Be on the watch for those that would undermine the work of Christ and destroy the flock of God. It's an ever-present danger, isn't it? Isn't it? Wolves among the sheep. Tares among the wheat. Goats in the flock of God. Hypocrites among the true. Those whom Paul describes to Timothy as having the appearance of godliness, right? But denying its power. And the command is always the same. It's always the same. The command is always avoid such people. Avoid them. Stay away from them. He puts this warning to us. That Paul does. He puts this admonition about false teachers and false brothers right after these greetings and commendations because he knows that, that such people have always been the greatest threat to the church. Now, if you think I'm being hyperbolic when I say that statement, I would encourage you to read the Word of God. You go back to Moses, and he's giving warnings about false teachers and false brethren. You read the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they talk much about false teachers and false brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ cautioned, Beware of false prophets who come, in, who come to you in sheep's clothing. They're in disguise. But inwardly, he says, they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Paul talked about the presence of tares, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus talked about the presence of tares among the wheat. Paul talks about how he was in danger from false brothers in his second epistle to the Corinthians and in his letter to the Galatians. Peter said there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. I want to say a little something about that. When Paul, or I'm sorry, when Peter says here that they will follow, many will follow these false prophets' sensuality. He's not saying that they're all going to be sexual profligates. That's not the idea here. What he's saying is, here's what happens. You get a false teacher, a false prophet who has influence among people and people begin to follow them. What they start to do is rather than following the clear commandment of the word of God, what they will do is they will follow their fleshly desires. They will follow their fleshly longings. Jude speaks of false prophets and false brothers saying, Beloved, although I was very eager, this is Jude 3 and 4, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Hey, I wanted to write you guys a letter, basically, rejoicing together in our common salvation. I wanted to write you a letter that celebrated our fellowship in Christ. But here's what I found. 
I actually needed to write you a letter so that we might together contend for the, the, the fate that was once delivered to the saints. Because certain people, he says, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You read through Scripture, beloved, and you will be hard-pressed to find a greater threat to the church, to the true and the faithful church than false teachers and false brethren. In fact, I read, I don't know if this is true, I read of a study that was done in the seminary one year where a, a professor of New Testament told his class that we were gonna, they were going to read through the New Testament and they were going to organize you know, the, the text underneath several themes and, and, and see what was the most oft-repeated or emphasized theme in the New Testament. And according to this study, when they got to the end, the most oft-repeated theme... was being wary of false prophets. There's no greater threat. So out of his love for the Roman church, for all the churches of God, this love, quite honestly, that was concerned with our well-being, a love that warns against error and falsehood, a love that seeks to protect and defend, a love that's willing to say the hard truth. And stand intractably on the Word of God. Even if it hurts somebody's feelings. That kind of love. To guard us, beloved. That's the exact kind of love I need from the Apostle Paul. This text that we're looking at today is a warning. It's a warning against false teachers and false brethren. And I'll say this. This text ought not come as a great surprise or a shock to any of us. Because we lived through this, haven't we? Haven't we? We've lived through this. We've lived through this thing over the last several years. And so it behooves us to hear this warning again. And to take it to heart. And to believe then the promise that Paul writes at the end. So I want to start by looking at the warning itself. Look what Paul says in verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. I want you to notice how Paul does this. This is really, this is really great. He says, you know, I appeal to you, brothers. And the idea is like this. It's, I'm coming alongside of you. I'm coming alongside of you as my spiritual siblings and I'm exhorting you and I am urging you with brotherly affection and with brotherly concern and with brotherly protection. Listen to me. Watch out for those that would do damage to the fellowship of the saints. Look out for those guys. Watch out for the false teachers and the false brothers. The word that he uses there for watch out is the Greek word skopeo. You can probably guess where we, what word we get from that. It's the word scope, right? He's saying you're scope them out, man. Take special notice of them. Pay attention to all those who cause divisions and create obstacles. 
that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, contrary to the apostolic doctrine, contrary to the, to the revealed truth of the Word of God, the entire counsel of God's truth. And here's why he says that. These people, Paul says, they cause divisions. That's what they're about. Like, understand what they're really after. They are instruments of Satan that are used to cause division and so discord and divide people from one another in the body of Christ. That's what they're there for. They seek to cause divisions and factions within the body. They look to upset the peace, to stir stuff up. Now, sometimes you do that if you hold fast to the truth of the Word of God, right? But that's not the idea here. The idea here is these are guys that they come into the church and they, by their actions, by their words, by how they conduct themselves, and we'll get into a little bit more of their methodology here in a moment, they create divisions and fractures and fissures within the church where they didn't used to exist. They introduce thoughts that people never had before. And when I say thoughts, I'm not talking about biblical thoughts. I'm talking about doubts and suspicions that you never had on your own before, but now all of a sudden you do. Moreover, Paul says here that they create obstacles. Now, when you read that, you're... You're thinking, you know, what you go through perhaps when you go through your basement to try to get to your Christmas, you know, decorations so you can get them out for your wife. All the obstacles of garbage you have to climb over. Stuff you've kept for thousands of years. Well, you haven't been married that long, but seems like it. That's not the idea here. It's not just little obstacles that you've got to hop over. The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word scandalon. Does that mean anything to anybody? Yeah, that Greek word scandalon is a strong one. It typically occurs in the context of a people abandoning their faith. That's where that word group is used in the New Testament. In other words, the idea is these people, these false teachers, these false brethren, they influence people to stumble in their faith and to lead them toward apostasy and toward falling away from Christ and abandoning the true faith altogether. In other words, they lead people into acting and living just like them. And they live, they act in a manner that is contrary to sound doctrine. It's in opposition to the truth. In other words, they just are not obedient to Scripture And they have many reasons why. And Paul says, avoid them. Avoid them. Notice that. If you underline in your Bibles, underline that. He says, avoid them. That means have nothing to do with them. That means refuse to entertain them in any way. That means have no fellowship with them. That means shun them. Don't engage them in a debate. Some people do that. They engage guys in a debate. Listen to me. Be very careful if you do that. Be very careful. These guys are false prophets, false teachers, false brethren for a reason. It's because they're slimy and they're manipulative. 
So don't put yourself in danger is the idea here. And don't give them a platform from which to speak. I had the guy, I, had, I remember I had a guy from the, the Church of Christ over here, right? That came over one, one day when I was in, when I was in my office. And he came in, you know, and he had this whole act that he put on. It was kind of humorous. But anyways, he came in and basically said to me in about four or five sentences that I was a false teacher. And he said, because you preach salvation by grace and not salvation through Christ plus baptism. So he said, what I really want to do is I want to, I would like to debate you on your stage. You can invite your congregation and I want to debate you on your stage. And I looked at him and I said, well, in truth, you're the one who insists on works as a part of salvation. And so I'm going to tell you the truth according to scripture. You're the false teacher. You're a false brother in Christ. And I read to him, right, from Scripture. I shared with him from Scripture, Romans 3, right? Talked him through the whole thing. And I said, and he said, well, well, if that's the case, don't you think your people need to be prepared for people like me? And I looked at him and I said, really, I think what you ought to be concerned about is repenting, man. And trusting in Christ and not in your own works. But I'll tell you what. No, I don't think my congregation needs to be exposed to you and I debating on our church stage. First of all, it's dishonoring to Christ to give you a position here to do so. And then second, they could already put you in your place from Scripture if they ran into you at Walmart or Kroger. And I meant that sincerely. People sometimes think it's, you know, it's worthwhile to have the debate and to see the different perspectives. You know what? Not always. Not always. I've seen more than one professing Christian become a Mormon or a Catholic because they decided to have the debate rather than sticking to what they knew was true. He says avoid them. Don't have anything to do with them and be decisive about it. Paul told Titus, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned in fact let me just point out one other thing about this word avoid because it's very interesting that paul uses this word that word that is translated here as avoid can carry the meaning of no longer putting your trust or your confidence in someone meaning what that you used to put your trust and your confidence in that person Maybe they were once considered to be trustworthy. Maybe you once thought that they were, they were faithful. But they've shown themselves to be otherwise, either in word or in action, right? And in other words, these false teachers, these false brethren, they're going to arise from within the context of the church. See, the danger is not always on the outside, beloved. The danger comes from the inside, too. I'm not saying this to shake your confidence in anybody sitting next to you. That's not my point here. My point is not to make you now look through jaundiced eyes at one another. It's not it. Be discerning. 
If something seems off, don't just ignore it. Right? But the idea is they're going to arise from within the flock. You remember what Paul said to the elders of, of, of at the elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian elders, when, when he departed from them in Miletus, he was never going to see them again, right? And Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32, tells us Paul said these words. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now I want you to notice the measuring stick here. Notice the measuring stick that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. What is it? What is the measuring stick? It's the word of what? The Word of God's grace. It's God's Word. That's the measuring stick. That's the standard. Fidelity in word and life to the core doctrines of Christianity. That's the standard. And so Paul calls us, be vigilant, man. Be aware. Be alert. All right, then what are the distinguishing marks? How do false teachers reveal themselves? How do false brethren reveal themselves in the body of Christ? Well, Paul tells us. He gives us their motives and he gives us their methodology. Look at it again. Verse 18, Paul says, For such people, such persons, do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they they deceive the heart of the naive. So Paul puts together here their motives and their methodology, right? At first he says, look, they do not serve... Our Lord Christ. Very interesting that he would use that phrase, Lord Christ, to talk about Jesus, right? It means literally our God King. They're not slaves to our God King. They don't serve our God King. Our God King's kingdom doesn't matter to them. They don't serve Him. Rather, they serve their own appetites. Literally their own bellies or their own hollowness. They serve themselves. They're not slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're they're slaves to their own fleshly desires, their own appetites. They've got a fleshly desire for self-gratification. They've got a fleshly desire for self-reputation and adulation and, of course, sexual illicit sexual desire, right? Another way to to put it is simply this. They act as they they do. They act as they do to satisfy their own egos and their own self-importance. They just want to be important. Well-regarded. Well-thought of. They claim devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, but their religion... If you peel back in the layer, their religion is really a camouflage for self-promotion. That's what he's saying. These guys serve themselves. They don't care about anybody else. Paul. Listen to Paul from his letter to the Philippians. Again, going back to the idea that these false 
brethren are once trustworthy. He says, brothers, this is Philippians 3, verses 17 through 19. Listen to what he says here now. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Then he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Paul is not talking about dudes outside of the church. He's talking about professing Christians. He exposes their motive. Look, they're just out for themselves. And then second, he says, he describes their methodologies and schemes. And their methodology and scheme is smooth talk and flattery with the intent to deceive. The methodology, beloved, is wordcraft. It's wordsmithing. It's verbal manipulation of the unsuspecting. The idea here of smooth talk is this idea of like slick-sounding speech, fine words, polished and attractive, right? Seemingly so impressive. I think of a, a guy who's now evidenced himself as being a complete, you know, apostate. This guy, I think his name is Clayton King, that used to do these spoken word videos. And you would watch that. And you'd be like, whoa, that is amazing how that guy does that. And then you find out that he's I'll just say he's a false teacher. It's these words that are attractive and spiritually seductive and they sound so loving and so wise. They act as if they're just concerned only for your welfare. And it's ultimately deceptive speech. They may be clever and entertaining. They, they may be seemingly sincere, but it's all a ruse. It's all a scam. It's just a put on, to quote the who. It's garbage. They tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And there's a big difference. Right? One endears you to people. If you only tell people what they want to hear, you are the greatest preacher, the most faithful brother ever in the history of preachers and brothers. Right? When somebody just tells you, you know, when, the, when, when you get what you want to hear all the time, you know how that, you know how that seduces your heart towards someone. But when somebody tells you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear, it takes maturity to recognize that that's your true friend and not the other guy. It's extremely enticing. It helps us to understand, beloved, why it is that people who profess to be Christians, right? People who post all kinds of stuff on Instagram and people who would tell you that they're followers of Christ. 
why they can sit under bogus preachers and delight in these guys, these bogus preachers that prance around on their lavish stages or on their fashionably Spartan stages, whatever's in, and they speak falsehoods and they speak half-truths and they twist Scripture to their own destruction and the destruction of their hearers. It's why people can sit and go and hear the same guy that promises for years, you know, this year's your year of spiritual breakthrough. This year's your year of leveling up. This year's your... How many times do you have to try to level up before you finally do? How many breakthroughs do you need? It's all garbage to keep your heart enslaved. The Word of God's not enough. False teachers, hypocrites, listen, they don't always, they're not always necessarily exposed by what they say and what they do. Sometimes it's by what they don't say and don't do. Listen to these words from J.I. Packer. He said, the mark of a false prophet or a teacher is self-serving unfaithfulness to God and his truth. It may be that he says what he shouldn't, but it is far more likely that he will err by failing to say what he should. He'll gloss over all the tough questions and issues, as did the false prophets in the Old Testament who went around saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They would certainly, they wouldn't speak the tough word calling for repentance, nor suggest that Israel was out of sorts spiritually. Instead, they brought groundless comfort, lulling people into a false sense of security so that their hearers were totally unprepared for the judgment which eventually came upon them. There are teachers in the church today who never speak of repentance, self-denial, the call to be relatively poor for the Lord's sake, or any other demanding aspect of discipleship. Naturally, they are popular and approved. But for all of that, they are false prophets. We will know such people by their fruits. Look at the people to whom they've ministered. Do these people really know and love the Lord? Are they prepared to take risks and even hazard their lives for Jesus? Or are they comfortable, inactive, and complacent? If so, they're self-deceived. And those who have irresponsibly encourage their self-deception will have to answer for it. Anyone who is in a position of spiritual leadership who fails to teach the more demanding, less comfortable, narrow gate and rough road side of discipleship becomes a false prophet. Wow. That's pretty hardcore, isn't it? You know, it only sounds that way in our modern age. That would have been a matter-of-fact statement during the era of the Puritans. In fact, in a moment, I'll quote from Thomas Brooks. Sounds remarkably the same. Their motive is themselves. Satisfying themselves. And they use smooth words and they use flattery. Complimentary and kind words, that, you know, effusive and overdone praise. You know what it's like. You know what that is. That, that kind of speech that you know is just, it's just a little too sugary, you know? And, and, and you're aware that 
that, you know, it's insincere. You know, it's like at Thanksgiving when somebody tries to make a dish and it doesn't turn out well. And then everybody's like, oh, no, no, this is really good. No, really, really good. I wish I had two stomachs so I could eat more of that. Just stop, man. Just just don't say a word. Let it be, right? It's that kind of thing. It's where people deliberately use words to manipulate the person they're speaking to. To ensnare them, seduce them, to manipulate them, to control them. Right? The naive, the unsuspecting. There's an old Danish proverb that goes like this. It says, flatterers look like friends just as wolves resemble dogs. Think about that. I'll read it again for those of you that are slow on the uptake. No flattery here. Flatterers look like friends just as wolves resemble dogs. Yeah, wolves look like dogs, man's best friend. But wolves are always calculating, how long would it take me to get my teeth to that jugular vein? They're not your friends. Even if they're cute, you know? Wolves are cute sometimes. Oh, look at that wolf. It's so cute. Yeah, give it a second. Wolves prey upon those that they consider to be vulnerable, the naive. What he calls here the, the, the naive, what he calls what are the unsuspecting or unprepared. Who are those people? You know who they are? They're the people whom the flatterer thinks are naive. I can get over on this one, so I will. Sometimes it's a person that's, you know, young in the faith, immature in Christ, hasn't learned the fundamentals of the faith really, or, or, or hasn't understood, come to understand the cunning and the treachery of Satan. Sometimes it's people that are weak and, and struggling. Sometimes it's those whose consciences have been dulled by sin and they need to hear a call to repentance, but the flatterer gives them, oh, uh, you're okay, brother. You're doing just fine. What can you expect? Look at everybody around you. You're ahead of them. Those who are in danger of becoming too attached to the world and its pleasures who need a firm word of correction. Instead, they get a word of flattery in order to pick off the unsuspecting. So now here's the thing. Why is he telling us this stuff? Why is he giving us the motives? Why is he giving us the methodologies? It's so we can identify him. Because here's the thing. False teachers, false prophets, false brethren don't run around with a sign on them saying, I'm a faker. Right? They don't have tats on their forearms saying, Soli Deo Mi. Or Soli Mio Gloria. Not Soli Deo Mi. Soli Mio Gloria, right? That's not it. They don't try to stand out as enemies of the gospel, right? I mean, again, like guys like T.D. Jakes or Stephen Furtick or, or, you know, Francis Chan and all the Bethel and all the Hillsong guys, right? The Pope. Did I just say the Pope? Yeah, the Pope. You know, the Antichrist of our age? Him. They don't act like false believers. They don't wear signs on their necks that say, avoid me. They pretend devotion to Christ. And they trade on the fact that most churches and most professing Christians will tolerate them or they won't be able to discern who they are. They seem like really nice guys. You know? Of course they do. 
Paul said of such men, they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They put on the the charm. They put on the look. But as Matthew Henry said, it's an easy thing to be godly from the teeth outward. And that's all they are. Any profession of faith and love for Christ that lacks obedience to His commands or faithfulness to His revealed truth, that, that, that lacks faithfulness to the Word of God, let me tell you something, that's a fake profession. It rings hollow and shallow because it is. Think about false teachers. Just focus in on them for a moment. Think of the massive proliferation of these men and women who have infiltrated the ranks of evangelicalism. You know what they are? They're not experts in the Word. What they are is experts at marketing. And they're experts at motivational thinking. And they're experts at gutting and twisting and reducing the Word of God. They're experts at presenting themselves, right, uh, as, as, you know, being able to help people achieve the life of their dreams. They're fulfillment practitioners, who have subtly redefined the gospel. So the issue now is no longer that we're sinners who need reconciliation to a holy God. Really what the issue is in this, we're consumers who have needs. And you know what? God is willing and ready to meet the need if you'll just give Him a try and, oh, by the way, sow me a seed. Right? Spurgeon rightly says, it's a remarkable fact that all the heresies that have arisen in the Christian church all have a decided tendency to dishonor God and flatter men. Isn't that true? It's true. You hear somebody speaking or teaching something that makes you esteem man more and God less? Ding, ding, ding. False prophet. But you know what else these deceivers do? They also ridicule and succeed in portraying those who stand for biblical truth as being, quote, rigid, too rigid, or heartless, or unloving, or not in step with the Spirit, or unwilling to listen, or lacking in grace. And really all that is is self-projection. They accuse others of what's true of themselves. Thomas Brooks wrote these sharp words in the early 1800s about false teachers. And they ring true today. He said, Satan labors might and main by false teachers, and may I add false brethren, which are his messengers and ambassadors to deceive, delude, and forever undo the precious souls of men. They seduce them and carry them out of the right way onto bypaths and blind thickets of error, blasphemy, and wickedness where they are lost forever. Then he gets really direct. Beware of false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. These lick and suck the blood of souls. Look out for these dogs. 
Look out for these evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These kiss and they kill. These cry, peace, peace, till souls fall into everlasting flames. Now, the best way to deliver poor souls from being deluded and destroyed by these messengers of Satan is to discover them in their colors. That so being known, poor souls may shun them and fly from them as from hell itself. Amen. Now, here's what, you know, it would seem I should do right now. Is give you a list of false teachers to avoid, right? Right? Beloved, here's the people that you ought not listen to. Here's the people that you ought to avoid, right? Just go right down the list of all of them. Copeland and Hinn and, you know, Bill Johnson and Valaton and Andy Stanley and T.D. Jakes, Jakes and Furtick and, you know, Francis Chan and Bethel and all those guys. Just go right down the list and give you a list. Here's the problem with me doing that. The list would never be complete. It would never be complete. If I made the list for you and said, okay, here's the list, I'd have to be like five hours later, hey, hold on, I got a, I got a name I got to add. Right? It could never be complete. But then second, beloved, it defeats the purpose of this text. The purpose of this text is not, okay, preacher, preach 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, and then give the people a list and send them home. No. The purpose of this text is teach the people how to discern. So that they can. And they will. But you've got to actively do it. I remember not many years ago, I made the comment from the pulpit that... Um, What's the smiley dude, smiley guy down in Houston? Oh, uh, yeah, Joel Osteen. That Joel Osteen was a false prophet. One of the ladies in our congregation, I won't name her name. She's not here anymore. But one of the ladies that was in the congregation blew her gasket. I mean, could not believe that I called Joel Osteen a false prophet. I mean, she was livid that I would say something like that. She was, you don't know him. Well, I don't have to know him. I've read his books. I've seen him be interviewed. I've watched him whiff on the gospel multitudes of times. I don't need to know him personally in order to say he's a false prophet. Well, maybe he just has a different emphasis. No, no, there's only one emphasis if you're a preacher. Christ and him crucified. Ah, that's what Paul said. I mean, maybe we could have a vote on it, but you know, you've got to be discerning. And that's the thing here. So how, how do you discern? How do you, how do you discern who's, a, who's t- teaching the truth and who isn't? How do you discern who's a true brother and who's not? How do you ensure that you remain a true brother or a true sister in Christ? How do you guard your own steps lest you become a false preacher? Preacher? Well, A.W. Tozer offers an excellent rubric, really excellent rubric, that I've adapted and I'm going to share with you. Good questions to ask. 
but first of ourselves. Listen to what he says. And this isn't just him. I've adapted it some, but you'll get the point. I'm going to give you seven areas. And if you take notes, this would be a good time to do it. And if you don't take notes, this would be a good time to start. The first question is this. How does this person's teaching and their words and my interaction with that person, how how does that affect my relationship with God? Does it does it magnify and glorify the Lord or is he diminished in my view? Does this person do they magnify the gospel of Christ without apology and without excuse and without compromise? How does their teaching, how does their words, how does my interaction with this person affect my relationship to God? Second, how does this person, in word or in deed, affect my attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it magnify him? Does my interaction with this person magnify Christ and and give him first place? Or does it subtly shift my focus onto me? Or maybe onto him or her? Does this person treasure Jesus Christ and his glory above all things, but especially above self-glory and personal praise and boasting? Do they point me in that same direction? Or do they always seem to be concerned that they need to get the certain juice that they deserve? Third, how does this person's teaching in life affect my attitude towards Scripture? Does it magnify the authority of Scripture? Does it make the authority of Scripture weightier in my life? Does, does this teaching do their life? Does it agree with the Word? Does it encourage my love and my obedience to the Word? Do I see this person taking seriously the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ as shown by a pattern of obedience in their own life? Do I see that? Fourth, how does this teaching affect my fleshliness? Does it feed self or does it crucify it? Does it feed pride or humility? Does it feed subjection and submission to my own fleshly desires or subjection and submission to the spirit of the living God? Five. How does this teaching in their life, how does it affect my relationship to other Christians? Does it cause me to withdraw from other Christians and find fault with them and, and, and exalt myself in superiority over them? Or does it lead me to genuine love for everyone who knows Christ? Does it lead me to a love, genuine love for the family of God and for the bride of Christ? Can I say, you know what, having, having interacted with this person, I love the body of Christ more than I did before. Sixth. 
How does the teaching and example affect my relationship to the world system? After my interaction with this person, do I, do I, does it lead me to pursue the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? Does it lead me to pursue worldly riches and reputation and pleasure as supreme? Or does it crucify the world to me? And then last one. How does this person's words and life affect my attitude towards sin? Does it cause me to tolerate sin in my life or to turn from it and grow in holiness? That's a great rubric. Those are excellent questions. And they're ones that we need to seriously consider that, and ones that will make us watchful and make us more discerning. Now, again, in saying this, I'm not encouraging you to be distrustful of everyone or to organize a witch hunt in the church. That's not what we're after here. But when something seems off, you don't just ignore it. You be discerning. You be proactive. You examine. You consider. You speak to. You get, you know, you don't just... We need to be discerning. And not just of other people, especially of ourselves and our own hearts first. So that's the life-giving Warning and admonition from Paul. And here's why he felt compelled to get it, give it. Look at verse 19. He says, Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Right? He's saying this. He's saying, look, you know what? I want you guys to understand why I'm saying this to you after all these greetings and commendations. The reason I'm saying this to you is not because you're doing it wrong. It's because you're doing it right. The reason I'm saying this to you is because you all have... You have a, a, a testimony, a, a reputation of being obedient, of being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, of striving for conformity to Christ and, and fidelity to the Scriptures. And so it might seem counterintuitive, but it's the very reason, it's, it's the very reason I'm saying this to you is because you are obedient. Not that I'm fearful that you're going to be disobedient. But here's the thing. Because you are obedient... You're a prime target. That's the idea here. They were a prime target, beloved, because they were obedient. Think about it, man. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. Corinth was a jacked up church, was it not? Was was it not? Go, yes, it was horrible. It was really jacked up. It was. I said this to my wife the other day. I'm reading through Corinthians right now. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how it is that Paul commends these guys like he does. Like, you read this and you're like, this is one of the most messed up churches in the entire New Testament. And yet Paul is like, you know, extremely gracious to them. He would have had me pulling my, they would have had me pulling my hair out. I just want you to notice I had hair before I came here. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Here's the idea, though. It was their very obedience that made them ripe for, for attack, beloved. Can I tell you what? I hear all the time, you know, people all the time talk about, oh, it's Satan's attacking this church, Satan's attacking that church, and Satan's attacking Benny Hinn, and Satan's attacking this guy. Let me tell you what. Okay, here's the truth. These kinds of attacks... 
this kind of threat, they're not wasted on churches that are, of, that are of no consequence. They're not wasted on churches that are not faithfully preaching and seeking obedience to the gospel and the whole counsel of God and seeking the expansion of Christ's kingdom and His glory. You know why these, these, these kinds of things aren't wasted on those kinds of, quote, churches, unquote? It's because there's no need. Some people might say, well, what about those churches with false teachers as their pastors? What about them? <laughs> My answer to that would be they're not churches at all. What? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know why? Because they fail the test of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. They fail the test of right belief and right living. They're not churches at all. Satan's desire, beloved, is to undermine the good works of the gospel. And he has no concern to attack a, quote, church, unquote, that preaches a non-gospel because they're already serving him. The church in Rome needed to be protected from the false teachers and the false brethren that were going to come in and, and, and try to, to undermine what God was doing in their midst. And he's saying, look, here's how you're going to do it. This is what you guys need to do. Be wise as to what is good. That is, be intimately acquainted with what is profitable spiritually, what's beneficial. Know the Word of God in and out. Know Christ in truth. Grow in your knowledge of the Lord God. Be wise in the things that are good, right? Whatever's honorable, whatever's pure, lovely, commendable, whatever's of excellence, whatever's worthy of praise. Put your mind on those things. And on the opposite side, be innocent as to what is evil. What does that mean? Here's what he's getting at. He means be uninitiated, be unskilled in evil things. I hear people sometimes say, well, I really, I need to examine what's going on in the culture so I know how to better relate to it. You know, I, I need to do some experiential research and personal investigation into how rotten, they don't say this, into how rotten the world system is and how rotten sin is. Then I'll understand how to minister to them better. No, you don't. You don't need to do that. I don't need to go out and sniff each bag in my, in, in the garbage can to describe, you know, d to discover that it's all garbage. I don't need to do that. You don't need to have an in-depth understanding of every error and false doctrine. You don't need to become an expert in all the wrong world religions. You don't need to do an in-depth study of false doctrine to know it's false. We've got the truth of the Scriptures, and knowing the truth is your best defense. What Paul's getting at is here is, man, keep your life unmixed. Keep your life unmixed. Don't get yourself all mixed up. Keep your life unmixed with false teaching and hypocrisy. Because it's serious. And then so our souls are comforted. Paul, speaking on behalf of God, gives us this great promise. And makes this prayer. Look what he says. Verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh man, that's... Hmm. Thank you, Lord. Right? The God of, of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he offers this prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This thing, isn't it? We get to the end of this letter, right? This letter about the gospel. This letter that is the quintessential letter on the doctrine of justification, right? And now, finally, at the very end, 
is the first mention in this entire epistle of our mortal enemy, Satan. Why now? I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he's just been talking about, Paul has, the the trial, the difficulty, the problem with false teachers and false brothers, right? Right? Well, the original false teacher and the God, little g, of all false teachers and false brethren is Satan himself, isn't it? Isn't it? False teachers, false prophets, false brothers, they're instruments of Satan, beloved. They're tools of unbelief and, uh, and faithlessness to lure us into false teaching or false and hypocritical living, right? And so why does he mention Satan here? It's because it makes sense to. He's just been talking about his kids. So he mentions Satan here. Satan is their master and Lord. Their father. He's, he's the... They serve his appetite and his agenda. That's to steal and kill and destroy. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Like the Pharisees are the quintessential spiritual pretenders, hypocrites, fake brothers, and false teachers, aren't they? Aren't they? All rolled into one. And Jesus said of them these words. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. That's not very seeker-friendly, is it? It's pretty direct. He says these things to them because it's true. In fact, Satan... Beloved, employed the exact same tactics that Paul says are true of false teachers and false brethren. Smooth talking flattery, right? To ruin Adam and Eve, didn't he? Didn't he? Yeah, go back and read Genesis 3 through that lens of smooth talk and flattery. Religious hypocrisy. Doctrinal falsehood. They're satanically inspired. But praise God, Paul says, soon... Soon, the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, soon, Satan himself will be crushed under your feet. Now, when he says that, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, obviously, it points to the ultimate triumph of the gospel, right? That's promised in Genesis 3.15, when God said to Satan, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, Right? The gospel of grace is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And in Christ, Paul promises we will share in his victory over Satan. That ultimately when Christ returns and he crushes Satan under his feet, praise God, we will, we will participate in that triumph and that victory with him. Amen? That's awesome. But we should also be reminded, beloved... That Jesus has already destroyed the works of the devil through his death on the cross that expunged the guilt of our sin and erased the enmity between believing sinners and God. And he triumphed over Satan in his resurrection from the dead, destroying the sting of death, right? He defeated Satan in delivering us from the dominion of sin. And here's the truth. Every time, beloved, every time we resist 
sin and Satan and the, the allure of, of evil every time we resist the instruments and the schemes and the fine and persuasive words and we hold fast to Christ. Every time we resist Him, we participate with Christ right now in His great victory over Satan. Right now. We participate every time we walk in uprightness and godliness and faith towards Almighty God. Every time we do it, it's a present defeat of Satan. And it is a picture, it is a foreshadowing, it is a foretelling, it is a reminder in the ear of our mortal enemy of his ultimate demise when he will be crushed under the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will participate together in that ultimate triumph at his return. You know what I think is remarkable and amazing? One of the things that I think is just astonishing and remarkable is that united to Christ, right? United to Christ, we who for our salvation required his crushing at the Father's hands, it's remarkable that united to him we share in his ultimate victory and his triumph over Satan when he crushes him under his feet. We get to to, to participate. He shares that triumph with us. That's mind-blowing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. He'll bring an ultimate and an everlasting peace, his shalom, his well-being, his perfection. It can never be undone. And he'll do it in the only way that's possible in a sin-infested world. The God of peace will bring peace through war. Through holy war. Through holy war. By thoroughly destroying all opposition, all enemies, and all threats to his peace. We often think of peace as the absence of war, right? That's what we think of. We think of peace as as being accomplished when we call a ceasefire for a little while. But it never lasts, does it? You know why? Because the true enemies are never truly defeated, are they? God's going to bring peace. He will bring peace through divine warfare against the enemy of our souls. Christ waged war against Satan and his works when he destroyed the enmity between believing sinners and the holy God. His holy warfare on the cross and through his resurrection. And he will conquer Satan fully and completely when he comes in triumph. But here's the deal. We've got to endure till that day, don't we? How are we going to do that? We look around, our world seems to be getting worse and worse all the time, doesn't it? It's remarkable. Just when you think man has been as blasphemous as he can possibly be, he comes up with a new way to be even more blasphemous. If there's anything that we are wonderfully creative at, it's blasphemy. Paul knows we need to endure, and so he offers this prayer. Look what he says. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's a prayer, of course, but it's also a statement. Basically, what he's saying is this. Look, in the meantime, till the final victory comes and Satan is vanquished, there's going to be for you grace for the long, for the long haul. You're going to have grace for the, for the great battle. God's grace is poured out for you in just, in just the right measure every single day. You'll have what you need, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We will have the grace that we need in every single situation, everything that we face. Everything is of grace from beginning to end, stem to stern. 
We need grace to be saved. We have it. We need grace to grow in wisdom and knowledge. We have it. We need grace to walk in obedience to the Lord. We've got it. We need grace to repent. We've got that too. We need grace to endure and grace to discern the faults from the true. And we have the promise of every necessary supply of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace abounding, grace abundant, grace sufficient. Amen. Beloved, I want to close this morning by reminding you and assuring you that Christ is the victor. Though it seems like, you know, when we look in our world and we look at the, quote, church today, how there just seems to be just a a growing apostasy, a a growing falling away from the truth, a growing embrace of of, of falsehood and lies, a, a, a falling away of so many that we thought were faithful who proved not to be. Man, I just saw Lecrae the other day. That guy used to, like, have some of the greatest reformed raps ever. The man is completely lost. Rest assured, Christ is victor. None of this takes him by surprise. His truth and his gospel will triumph in every age, and it'll triumph to the end of the ages. He's already defeated Satan at the cross. He continues to triumph over Satan as he leads us into, into, into holy life, and we follow by the Spirit's power and might, and one day he's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire. So then, in light of that, May we confidently follow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all the might that the Spirit provides for all of our days, secure in His abundant, never-ending, never-failing, never-extinguished grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take these words as seriously as Paul did when he instructed Tertius to pen them. There are false teachers in this world, there are false brethren in this world and in the church. But that doesn't change who you are. That does not change your glory and your majesty and your worthiness and your, your beauty and your glory. And it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change the truth of your gospel. It doesn't change truth at all. But Lord, we need to be on guard as your people. We need to be wise. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves, as you told us, Lord Jesus. So I pray that this morning, Lord, we have not only heard these words, but Father, we've received them. And that they will bear fruit in our souls as we meditate upon them. And I pray, Lord God, there would be an earnest desire in each of our hearts to guard ourselves and to take refuge in you so that we might not be found false. So that we might be found true. So that we might be 
Father, that seed that brings forth fruit, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. I pray that we would examine ourselves in light of this word today to check ourselves first. To examine ourselves first. I pray, Lord God, during this time that we have that Father, you would take the truth of your word and drive it deep into our hearts. And let us contemplate seriously what we've heard today. And that we would be encouraged with the promise that one day soon, one day soon, Lord, Lord God, you will crush Satan under our feet. We will participate with Jesus in his triumph. And until that day, you will give us the grace that we need. I pray, Lord, you would apply this word in each heart in the way that it needs to be applied right now. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.